From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody. Thanks for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend or a pet or just a person sat next to you? This week, we're talking Klarna proved doubters wrong with their latest results reporting a significant improvement in losses. Um, this is the latest set of results from Klarna after a very turbulent time. You know, They're claiming that they're back on track, and we dig into the detail and really try and decide if we think that's true. One in eight UK bank branches are expected to close by the end of 2023. We're joined by the the main journalist on this story to help explain the detail behind it and really talk about the wider implications of how people are banking and and how that ripples through the rest of the market. And Sandpanda are warning people about the dangers of romance scams with love hearts. A half funny, half sad run through of, of romance scams and people's preferred love heart messages. We get into all this and much more on today's show back after these messages. This is Fintech Insider After Dark. We are breaking out of the studio and bringing it to the community. It's a live recording of the Fintech Insider podcast featuring your favorite hosts and big name guests. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Join us and become a certified Fintech Insider. Whether it's beers in London or pizza in New York, catch up with Fintech geeks and make new friends across the financial services ecosystem. This is packed out, right? This is standing yeah. moment. We are bringing After Dark to the Village Underground in London on the 20th of September. Click the link in the podcast description or visit 11fs.com slash afterdark. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Good night. Welcome to episode 780 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Director here at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some brilliant guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by Alia Mahmood, Customer in Residence for Regulatory Affairs for Comply Advantage. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. I suppose, firstly, what's a, what's a customer in residence? I'm very intrigued. Uh, and for people who haven't come across Comply Advantage, what should they know? That's a fantastic question. Well, I, I think I need to give a bit of background to explain the, the kind of concept of a customer in residence. Um, Comply Advantage is um, a software company. We provide financial crime technology to regulated industries um, to help them identify financial crime risks related to their customers. Now, that can include your customer screening, transaction monitoring, and your transaction screening. But prior to joining Comply Advantage, I was a risk and a compliance professional in in the banking industry. Over the past 14 years, I've held various roles, so as a compliance officer and a money laundering reporting officer. So it was after I was armed with all that kind of domain subject matter expertise that I really felt that my role in a software company that builds that technology that's used by compliance professionals is really the place I want to be in. So the concept of customer in residence is that I am the voice of the customer when it comes to product strategy or designing the products that we provide, I make sure that it will actually meet the challenges for compliance professionals and address the needs that they have. Awesome. I'm already very excited to pick your brain. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, We also have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Sid Venkataramakrishnan, banking and fintech correspondent at the Financial Times. Thanks for joining us again, Sid. Um, what should our newer listeners know about you and, and what you've been working on recently? Hello, Minutes. It's great to be back on. Uh, so I cover the UK's retail banks and then fintechs, which is a, obviously a very very broad spectrum of companies. 
In terms of what I've been working on lately, it's been a, a summer of NatWest and Nigel Farage, followed <laughs> by bank branch closures and CBDC. So it's really been a, a, an interesting smorgasbord. Certainly not what I expected to be covering my start this job. Yeah, no, absolutely. What an interesting combo. Well, yeah, thanks again for, for joining us and also very interested to get your take on the news as we go through. And last, but definitely by no means least, we <laughs> have another FinTech Insider News debut for Dan Bibas, Bibas, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Probably started. Apologies. Um, General Manager International at Public.com. Welcome to the show. Can you remind our audience about Public.com and anything new our audience should know about about you? Yeah, sure. So uh, Public is a US-based investment platform, and we've recently launched in the UK, where we uh, enable UK-based investors to invest in thousands of US-listed stocks alongside ultra-low FX fees, and advanced uh, data and tools. Um, some might know us uh, in the U.S. based on our rapid growth in the last few years. Uh, now we're really excited to have launched in the U.K. Um, and so in my role, I oversee our expansion into new markets, and uh, the U.K. is one that we're thrilled about at the moment. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for joining us. It feels like not that long ago that life was, I think, in pretty much the exact same chair, actually. Wow, so, I'm honored. Uh, yeah. I think life was maybe only a few weeks ago when we were announcing our launch here. Yeah, no, so. exciting. Busy, busy time for you guys. So exactly. thanks, for, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And with that, let's let's get into the news. So our first story comes from AltFi, and that is Klarna rebuts misconceptions about business model as losses narrow. Klarna losses fall from 320 million to 76 million euros, a 76% improvement year on year, and it saw a profitable month in the first half of 2023. The improved fortunes follow a rebrand of Klarna, sort of self-described rebrand, from a buy now, pay later service to an AI-powered payments network. Klarna is leading the chat GPT charge, rolling out AI internally as well as public-facing chat GPT enterprise. The CEO claims these results are a rebuttal to those who thought their business model wasn't resilient enough to survive and preys on the financially vulnerable. Dan, I, obviously we've only just met, so I, I don't know what your opinions were on Buy Now, Pay Later and Klarna before before this news, but does this news change your perspective on Klarna at all? Um, I believe with any of these things, uh, maybe the proof is in the pudding. So if um, this is maybe a positive announcement or something new and it changes the tone, I think that's... I'm always happy to see other fintechs that are evolving and succeeding and maybe changing. Um, but I think, yeah, in order to have a positive impact, it sounds like there's this shift towards AI. I suppose that's more than just, uh, uh, you know, we'll need to see how that pans out over the next few months and the next few years. Um, but yeah, exciting to read it. Yeah. Sid, what do you what do you think? Does this mark the turning point for, for Klarna or are they just benefiting from, from the interest rate environment? I think it's a, co it's a combination. I think obviously having those deposits in Sweden and Germany where they're a registered bank does definitely help in this climate. Um, but I think it is also a an interesting turning point seemingly for, for BNPL since we had good results from a firm the week before Klarna came out with these, with these back to very strong numbers. So I think it's going to be interesting to see actually whether maybe we've hit that the, the rock bottom of, of expected credit losses and actually things might be turning around because systems run by companies like Klarna are getting better over time. Absolutely. And Ali, I suppose, obviously, you know, not commenting on like Klarna individually, but I suppose buy now, pay later as a whole space. You know, as Sid said, a key part of these numbers are reducing their losses. You know, what are the particular challenges that buy now, pay later firms face in, in that space when it comes to kind of detecting bad lenders and, and, and people that might not be able to repay those loans. Yeah, so it, it essentially boils down to the risks of fraud that exist within the e-commerce space. And buy now, pay later is especially susceptible because when um, loans are granted, there's no real credit checks that are done 
on the individual taking out a buy now, pay later loan. There are thresholds to how much you can borrow. So I guess when it comes to a credit risk perspective and the default on credit loans that have been given out, it, it reduces it slightly because you can't borrow a large chunk of money as you would with a traditional loan. But Buy now, pay later provides a lot of benefits to consumers as well. It's expected to be a $596 billion industry by 2026. And there's no real kind of demographic of consumers that use it. It's divided equally between male and female and other individuals. Um, it, it's adopted globally and uh, it's, it's just going to increase because it provides consumers with that convenience to purchase something that perhaps they do not have the money to purchase today. It also allows them to try something before they actually commit to it. But with all things e-commerce related, there's always that risk of fraud that companies in the buy now, pay later space need to be very mindful of. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great breakdown. Thank you. And Sid, I suppose, how do you how do you see Klarna comparing to to kind of their rivals at this point in time. It's been obviously a very turbulent period for them from a from a sort of valuation perspective. And they've obviously had some big changes in their in their staff. So how are they how are they comparing to all that all the others in, in this busy and crowded space? I think it's really interesting because I know as you said, you know, Klan has made that move from BNPL to AI powered company. I think to be fair to them, they have been saying we're a payments company, not just a BNPL company for a while, because they have the pay now that the debit option, which I think partially was regulatory driven, that, you know, has become, I think, 40% of traffic. The last time I'd seen it was was pay now rather than buy now, pay later. So I think name brand recognition wise, they've they've really secured the market there. Um, I think players like, smaller players like Zilch are doing interesting things, taking different models there. But I do think that there's still going to be the question around consolidation, particularly in certain markets like Australia, where you have, I think, four or five listed buy now, pay later players there. There just isn't going to be enough demand, I think, uh, or enough enough differentiation between them to to really get to the, uh, to get a market size um, where it, it does work out in a period where investors are more uh, risk averse and where, you know, rising rates and face rate pressures might cause problems. Yeah. And Dan, obviously, an incre- one of the key markets for Klarner is the US. And they've come out and said very clearly in these results that you know, it's their growth in the US that is helping them to bounce back and, and mm-hmm. helping them to turn these numbers around. Has their growth in the US, obviously, I, I know that you're maybe not based there at the moment, <laughs> or you're, but I'm, I'm keen to get your perspective on you, that trajectory. Did it take you by surprise? Is there anything that you think um, they can still do in the American market to help them grow further? Yeah, I think, um, look, the American market is, um, it's big, it's diverse. Um, I think we think about... Um, Often, I think in our industry, our bubbles, when we think the American market, we think New York and San Francisco, but it's much broader than that. So um, not surprised to hear that the U.S. helped contribute to that bounce, probably part of a longer term trajectory. So again, uh, you know, a 400 million person market and, uh, you know, the economic size and scale that's in the U.S., I think won't be one in one quarter or two quarters. But um, to Sid's point, I think also in terms of name recognition, um, especially if you consider a European company heading overseas, I think they have very much so secured their name in the space. I think they've brought in their product suite. And I think especially as they, again, like I said before, when they say they're now a more AI-powered company, what will that look like um, in a few months or a few years? They have that focus on payments. These are all areas where um, I think if you get it right, it's probably a bottomless barrel of opportunity and in a large market. So yeah, not surprised to see that that's an important part of their growth and I'm sure it will continue to be. And uh, it sounds like they have all the right ingredients that if things go well, uh, it will be a very positive story for them. 
Yeah, absolutely. I suppose the other part, we've talked about the AI part, I suppose the other rebrand that they're pushing alongside that is is about this sort of shopping platform and, and trying to move not just from kind of that moment of transaction, but also helping customers move into that discovery space and, and kind of managing everything that, that sits around it. So yeah, definitely kind of an interesting story in terms of how a brand evolves, right? And correct, I think that's correct, that's yeah. something that's really interesting, really interesting to follow. Um, I suppose, Sid, the other thing I'm keen to get your thoughts on is obviously with this latest release, you know, conversations around IPO inevitably start to pop up again. Um, you know, the, the CEO has said that he believes that the conditions are are being met for them to IPO, but just, you know, the, the market conditions aren't favorable. So um, how how seriously do you take that? And, and, and what do you think might be a time frame to actually start thinking about this seriously within? Yes, it was a fun, because I was chatting with my colleague Richard to Sebastian about this. And, you know, this is obviously a much more upbeat conversation than, than maybe after the down round or, or even before the down round. I think it will be interesting seeing a firm which is still pretty, you know, I think shares down still quite significantly. Uh, I think they were down 80% before the uh, all the strong results. Um, so I think that time frame I, I'm still still unsure about simply because I think FinTech generally has, has suffered. You know, we've seen Adyen, uh, you know, the one which was sort of supposed to buck the trend suffering recently. So I think that's it's going to be a, a bit of a waiting game. I think that there's really going to need to be more clarity that Binance Data isn't just having a good quarter, and that really this is a fundamental shift, and that they really have cracked the problems of expected credit losses. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose we've also seen, you know, in terms of you know, Klarna's fortunes have improved, but you know, we saw ClearPay shutting down the European operations have resulting in, in many layoffs. So, Alia, do you do you kind of see Binance Data as an, as an industry as a whole as being under, under threat or is that just kind of one company maybe that's struggling and the rest are doing relatively well? Uh, you know, I think it, we, we can't just have what happened, you know, what's happened to one company kind of dictate the trend of buy now, pay later and, and the market for it. There, there are lots of benefits with buy now, pay later, but again, it's, it, it's a model that can put consumers at risk of going into debt because they're not keeping a track of how much loans they've taken out. It's interest-free, some of them for a period of time. So you get comfortable and it's difficult to budget. And then when you think about all the, the fraud that is attached to e-commerce, um, and going back to your point around how Klarna are introducing their own kind of shopping um, marketplace for customers. I, I wonder whether that was actually a push from kind of uh, whether the, the the lens on that was more of a risk and a compliance one, because if you think about the risk of e-commerce, there's the risk of fraudulent merchants um, and consumers buying from a fraudulent merchant, having taken out a buy now, pay later loan and then ending up with no product. But if you can control the market participants within a marketplace on your app or the your own platform, then you're essentially essentially shielding yourself from that risk to a certain degree of risky merchants. So I think it's a combination of many factors. I think the clear pay, it's unfortunate, but that will not dictate the kind of trend that the market's moving in. And we've seen a lot of big tech companies also offer buy now, pay later. So it's it's definitely something that's here to stay. Uh, I, I just think more guardrails need to be put around it to make sure it's a viable um, option. No, absolutely. Okay, well, always, always interesting to kind of get commercial updates from these companies, especially you know as we've covered like when they've been through challenging periods. So interesting to see kind of how can how Klarna continue to do. 
Okay, moving on to our next story. This one comes from the FT. Uh, One in eight bank branches to close by 2024. The trend away from fiscal branches continues with more than one in eight expected to close across the UK by the end of 2023. These closures are despite a push by the UK government to ensure essential services are available within a three-mile radius of everyone. It is widely accepted that the growth of digital banking services is contributing to the downfall of branches which are becoming increasingly cost inefficient. Sid, you wrote the story for the FT, so it'd probably be a bit <laughs> rude to to not come to you first. You, know, I've read the, the the high level, but like, what is what are the additional nuances to this? What more can you tell us about this? So, um, I I'm going to put out. I feel somewhat bad saying this on on the fintech side. I'm a big fan of cash. I think cash is actually great. I recommend everyone go out and read Brett Scott's Cloud Money on this. But so, I mean, basically, banks have been cutting bank branches branch networks since you know the 90s. And I think part of that is to do with consolidation. But also, obviously, since digital bank came along, which is a much cheaper option, and also since the pandemic, we've seen this accelerate. So we've got 636 closures this year announced so far. Um, and really, you're seeing the network being slashed. And what this creates is, is an issue for particular communities, small communities, where people are more reliant on cash, and particularly outside of London. A lot of small businesses have traditionally relied on cash. What happens is that when a branch closes, it's not so much people withdrawing cash, it's actually depositing it. So when SMEs can't deposit cash, they go to cards. People who traditionally relied on cash can't use them or have to move to cards or spend less. High streets are affected as a result. So you have this weird feedback loop. And and then that's usually solved by banks being, everyone wants to go cashless. And actually, it's a bit more complex than that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I used to, when I, before I moved out of London, I, I used to live on, on Labrick Grove and obviously that bank branch had lots of people who were kind of market traders on, on Portobello Road, which was right near the door. So you know, some days you'd have like enormous queues out the door for, for the bank branch. So yeah, I completely agree that like, it's something that is quite specific to individual communities and to the kind of money behaviour dynamics of of those communities. Um I mean, what what is the main impact then of all of these closures? Like, what what do you think the ripple effects are most likely to be? I think the ripple effect is biggest on. I mean, I think I think yeah, the first order effect is probably on people who are in small businesses who need to deposit that. Either they have to take time out in their day to go travel further afield, or they have to stop accepting cash. And then the impact is is then on communities who have traditionally relied on cash. It's often seen as a problem for the elderly, but it is it is people who are financially vulnerable who are often heavy cash users because, you know, people drowned cash and can actually go back to Aya's point on, on you know, Klarna or digital payment methods more generally. It's much easier to take stock of how much cash you have left as you actually count how many pounds you have in your hand. I think those communities are at risk of either being forced into payment methods, which they're less comfortable with, or being excluded from places, shops, uh, businesses, which don't take cash and which, um, you know, does create this also um, a ground for conspiracy theories. And we are increasingly seeing conspiracy theories around cashless society, around a plan by the elites to push us away from cash into more trackable methods, which, you know, I think somebody made the point, conspiracy theorists often uh, come to the, the right answer for the wrong conclusion, for the wrong reasons, or, or maybe the other way around. But I think there is a real problem here. And I think that uh, although the government is setting out to protect cash, it, it's not necessarily done enough in terms of cash acceptance. Yeah, no, I think we've also seen in recent times, given the kind of the cost of living pressures, we have seen an increase in even people maybe who weren't 
heavy cash users previously like starting to use cash much more precisely for those reasons that you set out than you've at UK if you have an amount of money for for a day or a week like when that money runs out it, it runs out right so yeah that people creating that friction for themselves that digital platforms are trying so hard to to take away so it's it feels to me kind of still like one of the main design challenges that fintechs around the world are trying to work out like kind of what is that trade-off between friction and, and and ease of use and convenience because kind of customers sort of say they want everything to be super, super easy, but then we can see through you know, actual behavior that that friction has a real role to play in helping people to make the rest financial decisions and, and kind of live within the kind of financial plan that they want to set for themselves. So no, I think it's um, a really important, really important debate. Um, yeah, Dan, sorry to put in the US box again, but you know, for what? the record, I'm I'm Canadian. Canadian. I've oh, never lived no. in America. Oh, um, but no, you're, this is so embarrassing. I, so often people think, hey, Dan, you're American. <laughs> in North America, cool. and, on the North American and continent. And I've lived my adult life in the United Kingdom. So, um, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But it's okay. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> on the North American continent, <laughs> how does this look? Um, so look, I, I, uh, Sid seems like he, he's the expert here. I, I don't have, um, let's say hard data on what it would look like in the U S or elsewhere, but I, I think it, it's directional, right? It, these are industry trends. I think a few things are interesting here is uh, this comes at a time where a few days ago, someone told me they got paid by check and they didn't know what to do with it because they're neobank. So this is actually quite topical, but I think the downside is a little bit what Sid describes. So there are certain communities, people, demographics that actually, uh, a branch or in-person assistance is hugely valuable. I think there are also still needs, call it edge cases, where um, it's extremely frustrating if you don't have the support of an in-person branch, the example of getting paid in check. And by the way, this is, again, I think a lot of people still get paid in check, whether it's small businesses, whether it's certain industries that are maybe a little bit more outdated in their payment choices, et cetera. I think this also has a risk of affecting those that are already more vulnerable. So unfortunately, uh, technology tends to benefit those that already have certain benefits, but maybe the other way around, it compounds maybe vulnerable people into more vulnerable positions. So all these things are negative. Obviously, the growth of neobanks means that we have wonderful products at the you know at our fingertips. Eleven uh, FS, you know, a thing or two about that. I'm kind of optimistic, and this is me projecting into the future that perhaps branches, some branches, uh, will remain, and maybe they become more specialized more tailored to the needs of the communities and environments that they find themselves in. So maybe a a branch uh, next to Portobello Market will maybe operate a little bit differently to one that has in a community where the average age is 70 plus and maybe people are still reliant as it might be different to one where for whatever reasons, maybe people don't speak English too well. Therefore, um, in-app onboarding is suddenly inconvenient, right? I think we forget that if English is not your first language, you sometimes do need help and to walk in. So not surprised by any of this. I think it's the direction of travel for the many reasons that were mentioned by Sid. Uh, Although I am hopeful that we sort of reach an inflection point where branches do make a comeback in their own suitable 21st century way and hopefully can still have a positive impact on customers in a way that they, they need to. So... I'm cautiously optimistic. I love a bit of optimism. I still remember when I first had to explain to my my grandma, you know, I changed jobs to join Loanverse, I had to explain what I was doing or who I was working for. She felt was the first thing she said to me. was like, are you responsible for the bank branches closing? <laughs> <laughs> Not a sort of congratulations or how interesting, but um, yeah, so I'm, I'm still having to fend that one off. Um, Ali, I keen to get your perspective. I, suppose, I find it super interesting when we look at other industries. Obviously, we've seen you know, Amazon as a main example, like the most obvious example. You know, they start off purely in the e-commerce space, but are now moving back into the world of, of physical destinations. So you know, could you foresee a, a similar 
optimistic trajectory that Dan set out? Are there any kind of practical benefits, I guess, particularly from a legal and compliance view to people trying to actually maintain those real world relationships? What Dan described is like the perfect picture for the future where industries and banks and governments actually think about the the less technologically affluent consumer, those with vulnerabilities, disabilities that need a branch close by. Now, whether that will happen or not, I guess we'll have to wait and see, but it's a very rosy picture. I think it's it's an irrefutable fact that digitalization has meant that consumers are expecting more control of their money and they're expecting it to be via digital channels. But there's also, it's a paradox because the same consumer uh, will still use their traditional brick and mortar bank for their salary payments, for their income, for major banking activities. So although there's that move to digital and fintech, brick and mortar is still going to remain because there are benefits of having a branch, not just when you think about the vulnerable customers. And I also pulled up some statistics from the UK specifically, which I think really paints a good picture. Uh, So this is data from the 2022 Financial Lives Survey Report, which says that 21% of adults without any vulnerabilities still use day-to-day in branch banking in order to to do their um, banking activities. And also out of that, 42% are those that have vulnerabilities. They are digitally excluded, they're in poor health, or they're in financial difficulties. So when we think about it now from a compliance perspective, Everything has become digitalized, even compliance processes. When you think about account opening, your KYC, know your customer and customer due diligence processes, all of that is being done digitally. And it's it's super fast, it's effective, it's less resource intensive, and th- that is why it's you know such a favorable option. However, if you think back to the days when you had to go into a branch in order to open an account, there were a lot more control measures that you could take that mm-hmm. you cannot take now using the digital way of doing things, especially with the rise of AI and deep fakes and fraud. And if you think about the UK legislation, I think that's also why that kind of fraud reimbursement model is coming about where banks need to reimburse customers that have been a victim of fraud. When you used to go into a branch, I remember when I used to work in the branch 15 years ago, we had specific red flags for a customer that has come in that seems a bit shady, an individual that's come in to open an account, perhaps through coercion because there's someone else with them or they're taking out a large amount of money. So all of those factors are kind of invisible because I guess you don't have to be that ballsy to be a criminal anymore in the digital world. You're hiding behind a screen. Yeah, no, I, that's that's so true. I think also we um, underestimate that digital, um, so a bit to Alia's point, um, digital experience on your phone, neobank, et cetera, um, it's actually great when everything works. But when something doesn't work, um, you're suddenly then diverted either to customer support, which can be a frustrating experience. Um, and when it comes to people's money, it's, it's quite personal, right? I mean, if your life savings are with a bank and suddenly your account is blocked, that is by any measure, no matter how affluent, how not affluent, depending on your life position, that's extremely stressful. And this is where I think uh, in-branch measures are maybe more effective and more customer-centric, but unfortunately they they have withered away. And, and to Alia's point, I mean, um, yes, um, KYC and all these processes, when done digitally, it's fast and efficient, it's great when it works. Um, but before you used to have these um, 
in branch processes that could almost support that to catch things that maybe aren't easily caught um, through digital processes. So I think we've gone in a world where like maybe um, physical branches and digital experiences would work side by side. Now we're moving, I think, to you know Sid's article about branches, unfortunately, uh, withering away. But I, I, again, back to the point of optimism, I think we'll find an equilibrium again. Yeah, no, for sure. I hope so. I suppose the only other dynamic to this, I'm not sure we've touched on, that I think is interesting with this shift is that the physical presence of a bank branch, certainly from what I can see in the UK, used to be a kind of a key driver for someone like choosing a bank or not choosing a bank, right? Like my right. parents banked with the bank that they could easily get to. And then I inherited the same bank because it was a bank. That, so I, it, I think it poses a really interesting challenge for the kind of the established banks. If you're, if you don't have that physical locational prompt anymore, you know, how does that change that, that moment of onboarding a new customer, finding a new customer? So yeah, huge repercussions, both for kind of customers, but also for, for people in the industry as well. So one that we will continue to keep our eyes on. Okay, we're going to just take a very quick pause here. We'll be back shortly. Looking to take your customer journeys to the next level and benchmark your products against the best in financial services? Well, look no further than 11FS Pulse. Home to over 5,700 user journeys covering everything from onboarding to crypto. It features analysis of global brands like Nubank, Revolut, and Robinhood. It's already tried and trusted by big names like Monzo, whose co-founder Jonas said their research phase took just a tenth of the time it normally would, thanks to 11FS Pulse. Join Monzo and hundreds of other brands taking their UX game to the next level by booking a demo today at 11fspulse.com forward slash demo. That's 11fspulse.com forward slash demo. Hello, it's Benjamin here, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS. Earlier this year, we published Building the Future of Home Buying, a report that calls out financial services for making the biggest, most significant purchase of most people's lives way more difficult than it needs to be. Well, fast forward to today and things haven't changed. Mortgage offerings are more important now than they have ever been, with sky-high interest rates in many countries forcing home buyers to shop around. We've got clients asking us how to move quickly to fix the problem and get a game-changing product to market. Want to know the secret? Step one, download the report at 11fs.com slash homebuying. Step two, get in touch at 11fs.com slash ventures. Speak soon. Welcome back. Before we get into the second half of the news and note to go check our most recent Fintech Insider Insights show. In our latest episode, we're asking what AI can and can't do in financial services. It's very relevant to what we've been talking about. David Breer is joined by a panel of experts from Clio, Feedseye and Starling Bank to look at how financial services need to adapt to the changes brought by AI, where it can have the most influence and where the human touch is still needed. Go check out that podcast in our podcast feed. It's the episode below this one. Okay, let's get back into the news. Our next story we've taken from AltFi, and that is AirWallex and Public partner to cut FX costs for UK investors. AirWallex and Public are partnering up to reduce GBP to USD conversion costs for UK investors. The service will be offered by Public using AirWallex's infrastructure and payment system. The platform will also include over 5,000 US listed equities. The new service will make it easier and cheaper for UK investors to access US markets. Dan, as our 
Canadian representative <laughs> from public. We can come to anyone else first on this. Can can you tell us a bit more, please? Yeah, sure. So um, public launched in the UK in July. Uh, we think there's a tremendous opportunity to give UK investors a chance to invest in US stocks in a way that is affordable with zero commission during US market hours. But also there's another equation to that, which is the different fees that are associated with it, one of which is uh, currency conversion. So naturally, as we were thinking about our expansion to the UK, we thought, okay, how, how do we make sure that if someone is investing in US stocks, they have access to it, but it's done so in a way that's in the customer's interest? Because I do think that ultimately, performance is what matters to customers over the long term, if they're trying to build up their financial security, and they make their own decisions as to what's appropriate for them. But um, you also want to make sure that um, fees aren't eroding any of the uh, performance or any of the investments that they've made. So uh, we've worked with AirWallex. You know, they have a very sophisticated tech-first platform, uh, aligned very much so with public's view of the world. As you know, we are a fintech, so we, you know, immediately saw strategic alignment with AirWallex. Uh, we saw that they had these sort of infrastructure processes, APIs that meant we could offer currency conversion as part of our experience in a way that's fast, convenient, affordable. And those are all things that, again, if we want to build out um, something that's actually helpful to customers in the UK, that's key. And so, and so, yes, yeah, so I think a lot of people uh, know Airwallex for some of their other partnerships, and we're delighted to have worked with them on this. And uh, I think uh, part of an exciting lineup of sort of news and updates that we've had in the last few weeks since we've launched in the UK. Yeah, no, definitely a busy a busy time for the team. Um, I'm always interested whenever we talk on the show about about partnerships. Obviously, like the most exciting thing to talk about is like the announcement of the partnership being launched or established. Yeah, but, but I suppose like the hard work is really the bit before, like making the decision, I assume, about who that partner should be. For so sure. I suppose I'm intrigued, like you've touched on some of the strengths of Airwallex, but like what was that initial wish list for you guys when you were going out to the market or did the market come to you? Which how did um, it work? I think it's a bit if we look into the call it for lack of a better word, the procurement process, right? How do we look at different different third parties in the market that could support us with this? A few things. Uh, so some of what I said before is it was really important for us that if we um, looked at a third party provider, uh, whether that's Airwallex or some of their peers, that we really felt comfortable with their tech stack. We really wanted to be certain that, you know, if we are offering like a tech first investment solution and one that is you know, needs to be run in a smooth, efficient manner. We had to be really comfortable with the APIs and the suite of tools that a partner could offer. And I think we were really happy to see what Airwalks had to offer. Another thing is understanding a bit, you know, it, how I find these agreements play out is usually when uh, both sides are aligned. So I think for Airwalks, it was obvious that they saw an opportunity working with public, public saw an opportunity working with them. I think we wanted to, again, this was a central part of our product suite to launch in the UK, but also I think Airwallex saw Public as a company that had done really well in the US and is now launching in the UK. And I think they really wanted to be a part of that expansion story because uh, naturally when you're working the world of currency conversion and remittances, you want to be able to support global businesses. So so I think it was that strategic alignment, making sure that tech stack worked, making sure all of that transitions into, again, an end outcome that is fast, safe, reliable, and affordable for our customers. I think that was the, the major sort of... Um, the final dot as we were working through all the different providers out there. And Airwallex so far has proved to be a great fit. Yeah. No, no, I think um, they're a really impressive business. And also just coincidentally, when they're on the show a very long time ago, the guest brought me a very nice travel adapter plug, oh which has always wow. been my go-to travel adapter plug for taking on holidays. It's a very good travel adapter plug. So that's probably not the reason why you chose them. But um, Little you know. do you know. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sid, kind of keen to get, get your perspective on this partnership. Um, you know, Airwallex have been 
you know, not saying that you know it's, they're cheating on you or anything, but they've been, <laughs> they've been busy on the partnership front, right? They're, they're expanding. They've got quite a few partnerships on the go. So, so what's your take on what Airwalks are doing, Sid? I think it's really impressive. I think obviously the, the space around FX and, and content conversions has become increasingly crowded in a good way. I think obviously, mm-hmm. you know, um, we've moved on from the days of just just being banks or just being you know wise being the only uh, only kid on the block, which I hear in discussions or Revolut. You know, Atlantic Money is also making waves here. I think, I, I, from my understanding, this partnerships will be the way forward a- across the sector. I think that it, it does speak to the the breadth of fintechs and the kind of ways that, and synergies to to get very parad- paradigmatic that are emerging. I think a- across the space, which you know boosts it beyond just being sort of monoline players. Alia, what's your take on on partnerships as uh, as the way forward? I, I think it's fantastic. I think, I mean. Air wallets and um, public, it, the partnership is fantastic. And I think we'll see more fintechs kind of either consolidating themselves or partnering with other um, companies in order to provide better rates to clients at lower fees. But I am a bit biased because I worked at Revolut for close to three years. So I think they were the kind of four front runners of providing the best kind of FX exchange fees for, for individuals. I, I did work at Wise before, yeah. so this might get a little bit oh, heated. Yeah. Okay. Well, like, <laughs> I'm so kidding. I'm kidding. I'm it. just horsing around. <laughs> the remittance wars. The remittance oh wars. Yeah. Oh, so have you worked for anybody that you need to <laughs> disclose or? No? I, 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 uh, I haven't. No, I should think of something funny to say, but I don't have that. So no, sorry. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I think it's it's really really interesting. I'm, I've been looking at kind of the the partnerships that Airwallets have have been setting up. So kind of you know, payment consulting startups, you know, Israeli you know, sort of our crowd investment space, Brex. So and now you guys, I think it's a pretty pretty cool cohort of cool businesses. Cool roster. Cool roster, yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, as you've alluded to, Dan, you know, you guys have just launched in the UK. Are you are you allowed to give us any clues about what's next? Life was saying when he was here that you know there is a, a big plan for expansion. Have, have you made any further decisions, or is it all still under wraps? Uh, I think for now the the real focus, like the the real focus in front of us, is the UK. So I think we're really in the in the very first inning uh, in terms of getting started. We see uh, an opportunity. Uh, you know, we really see an opportunity in again reducing certain barriers that haven't yet been reduced in the UK market. So again, I think there are a lot of providers out there that will claim to have low fees, but then maybe there are hidden fees or subscription costs or others that somehow contribute to it. We really do think that access to the US market in a way that's accessible is uh, much needed to the UK investor. Over time, um, again, we're in, like I said, we're in the very first inning. Over time, we are always learning from our customers. We are always trying to understand, you know, what is it that can support them, help them on their journey. I imagine, again, over time, what the UK product would look like may have elements of parity with the US, but there may be cases where there's a product opportunity to really help customers in the UK, and we would focus on that. So again, very exciting to launch in the last few weeks, and you know, life probably told you all about it, but I think for now, the focus is very, in terms of our expansion, the focus is the UK, other opportunities we are working on, but that's more in the background. You'll get the update when things are, are more concrete, but we're very excited to be in the UK. And um, like I said, I think a lot of our product strategy in the UK will be shaped by the needs of UK customers over time. Yeah, no, no, that makes makes complete sense, and yeah, pretty busy schedule. So I think yeah. it's I think it's fair to, to pace yourselves. It's all good. <laughs> I suppose again, I'm always interested in like the behind the scenes stuff on partnerships, but I'm also interested when a, a company like launches in a new market, almost like how quickly you kind of try and change things, or like how long you give the product product just to kind of 
bed in. So, you know, I know you've only been live for a couple of weeks, but like, are you already starting to observe UK differences and, and, and think about changes or are you going to kind of let it sit for a bit long before um, you do anything major? I think it's more of an art than a science, right? So um, it, it's part of learning, part of being in market, whether you're new or incumbent. There are some things that you learn that you might say, okay, well, there's a, a real reason to prioritize this. There are other bits where you think, well, this is worthwhile and it maybe fits somewhere else in your roadmap. So more of an art than a science. I do think we've been interested in seeing that actually, uh, you know, we find that UK investors, or at least the ones that we interact with, are you know, more and more knowledgeable. And I think that's no surprise. I think the last few years, there's been a lot of content growth discovery in this phase. Um, so we find when we're interacting with customers, we're, you know, we're impressed by the level of awareness, of insight. And again, in terms of, you know, as we as we learn from them, I'm sure there will be ideas, insights that will feed into our product for the UK. Some of that might even be a nice synergy, a nice crossover with the US. But yeah, we're still very much so in market, learning from our customers, continuously growing. And I think that'll be seen in our product and our roadmap over the next few months, no doubt. Cool. Yeah, no, stoked to see it as it comes. So keep keep up the good work. Awesome. Um, our next story comes from Finextra, and that is Switzerland to impose highest AML, anti-money laundering, standard in Europe. New AML regulations would make Switzerland the strictest in Europe. New rules include a central registry to track the legal owner of all entities, as well as greater due diligence in real estate and enhanced checks on precious metal and gemstone sales. The laws will be presented to Parliament in 2024. The new register would detail the beneficial owners of companies and other legal entities with a body within the finance ministry carrying out checks on the registry and, if necessary, imposing sanctions. Alia, given your expertise, I'm, I'm going to come to you first on this. I'm sure we have a lot of people amongst our listener base who are in the weeds of AML, but if they're not, you know, can you make this real for us? Like, how, how big a deal is this? So it, it is a big deal because at present, Switzerland is the only European country that does not have a central national database of beneficial owners. So when the finance minister unveiled reforms last month to increase the transparency of beneficial owners for trusts and other companies, this was a move that doesn't put Switzerland as a country with the strictest AML laws, but it puts it closely on par with other jurisdictions. And I think that's the important point to note here. In, in in addition to that, um, there's a second raft of measures that also tighten obligations for lawyers and accountants and other service providers. But I think when we think about all of these new revisions that have come about, it's important to take a look back into the history of Switzerland's Anti-Money Laundering Act. Since 2019, when it came under the Financial Action Task Force's Enhanced Monitoring, ICAR still is. Um, there were a lot of deficiencies that were identified and regulators um, reached out to legislators in order to have what are now the revisions being made, having been made back in 2020. But in 2021, it was there's actual pushback to include enabling service providers. So those are your lawyers, your notaries, um, real estate agents and accountants. Um, from being included in the scope of performing customer due diligence, enhanced due diligence, and actually understanding who the ultimate beneficial owner is. And when you think about how far Switzerland has come and how long it's taken, we need to think of it from the context of how much money is flowing through Switzerland and how much money is held in the banks. So it's, it's the largest offshore wealth center with $2.4 trillion um, of foreign assets held, but it is also the eighth 
country, which is considered to be a venue for dirty money. And that is eight out of 31 countries in the EU. Yeah, no, I, I looked at that list and it's one of the few times when you're looking at list and being like, don't be, you know, UK, don't be near the top, don't be near the top. You know, I'd be curious, what is the first? The first is Bulgaria, apparently. Bulgaria, Hungary, Malta make up the top, top three. Um, so again, I hopefully don't have too many listeners to the show who are looking for best place to take their dirty right. money, but <laughs> <laughs> wasn't meant to be a, a hints and tips session. Um, that's a really helpful breakdown. Thank you. Thank you, Alia. I suppose, again, we use the word or I used the phrase ripple effects earlier on the show. What what do you see the ripple effects of this being? Like, is this fundamentally going to change the money laundering scene in, in Switzerland or are the criminals just going to change how they do things? So I think Switzerland kind of always sticks out um, as a sore thumb when it comes to financial crime because of the bank secrecy model it has. And even with the current revisions um, that are going to go to parliament next year, there's still loopholes. So for instance, where now Switzerland requires there to be due diligence on real estate investments, that is only for cash-based real estate investments. If we compare that to other European countries like Germany, there is a complete prohibition of real estate purchase and investments being made in cash. Additionally, if you were to purchase that real estate using digital assets, which is quite common, that enhanced due diligence and customer due diligence and all of the AML requirements do, do not apply. So th there's still that trend of maintaining bank secrecy, even when it comes to the register for beneficial owners. It is not going to be a public register, similar to how we have the UK Companies House. It's only going to be accessible by law enforcement, um, certain banks, there's no real kind of guidelines in terms of which authorities can access it. So when you think about it from the point of view of a financial institution that is acting as a private gatekeeper for safeguarding markets from financial crime, if you do not have direct access to that public register, well, how are you going to verify who your customer is. It's well and good to have that register available for law enforcement, but that's actually after something has happened when it kind of even gets to law enforcement's attention that they can check. The actual checks are happening within the regulated organizations, whether that is law firms, real estate companies, or the financial institutions. And it's unclear as to whether they will even have access to that register. So it, there's a lot to, there, we do need to wait and see how this kind of rolls out next year when this is presented and discussed in Parliament. We also need to be mindful of the fact that previous anti-money laundering revisions and proposals have been watered down in the past. Yeah, and no, it always um, always feels like a risk, right? That you start out with like really strong recommendations and then by the time they actually become a thing, it's it's kind of lost a lot of that edge. Sid, what was what was your, your take on this? Are you, you impressed by what Switzerland are doing or you, do you have skepticism i think it's it comes at an interesting time we've given discussing i mean what is it at the start Nigel barrage and you know generally discussions around anti-money laundering peps fraud corruption and so on i think yeah i think we are in an interesting time i think it, it, it's positive generally that aml is being tightened up i think uh we've had issues with both fintechs and traditional banks and thinking um about the NatWest, the, the gold dealer in Bradford bringing in bags of, of cash was not funny, which I thought at the time was because they were saying they'd been stored for a while, but I've been told is actually a reference to weed, um, which makes me feel much more innocent and naive than I actually should be. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I think obviously Switzerland, you know, 
being eighth on that list isn't great, but I think generally AML needs to probably needs to be tightened up across uh, Europe. And I think there are perceptions that um, issues with AML are stripped to certain geographies. I think that just isn't the case. Yeah, Dan, I suppose, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming AML is a big part of any any fintech's processes mm-hmm. and setup. Um, how, how are you guys approaching it? public yeah just a, a quick note on the on the switzerland piece obviously I, I defer to Elias seems to be the expert on this but um so um i think a lot of good points were covered one a bit to sid's point and this touches onto your question delighted to see any instance or any initiative that could reduce financial crime i think there's always and again a bit to Elias' point is understanding the effectiveness of those policies so you want the net benefit to be a reduction in financial crime and not like a reduction in competition or reduction in access and maybe even ties all the way back to our um, discussion about branches, you know, is the end objective better for end customers? I suppose with all of these things, you need to see them play out. But I think the the initiative, the intention is the correct one, right? What can be done to reduce financial crime? And some of Leah's points about Switzerland having sort of um, needing to crack down uh, is perhaps long overdue, um, given the size and scale of um, some of those topics that relate to, to Switzerland. And, and look, any regulated financial services firm, and, and we'll talk about the UK for a second or, or in Europe, this is obviously a high priority. This is something where, um, you know, it sounds cliche, but it's true. Um, processes, technologies, policies, uh, whether it's at the government level, supranational level, uh, all the way down to company level, uh, need to evolve simply because um, financial crime evolves, right? So, um, yeah, it's a very important part of what any regulated company would do in the UK. And it's it's um, it's not an easy task. So it's something that requires a lot of attention, a lot of focus. Um, and I think we'll also see that um, uh, there is also a, a business interest in all of this. So I think a lot of people view it as, oh, this is compliance. You have to do it. I, I don't think that's true at all. I think if you get these things right, you actually over time end up being uh, the trustworthy one in the room. And that has all kinds of positive commercial and reputational benefits to it. Um, so hopefully that answers your question and uh, general views on these topics. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, really good breakdown and really interested to see yeah, what the repercussions are like as Switzerland takes these steps and, and if kind of as you earlier mentioned, if they have been dampened down, if, if there are further moves in the future to kind of reinforce these things further. Okay, got to move on now, sadly. Now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quickfire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Um, just one story in this section this week. From TechCrunch, Nigerian embedded finance platform Anchor raises $2.6 million. The Nigerian banking-as-a-service platform has raised $2.6 million of investment led by Goat Capital. Though the fintech space is crowded, the provision of BAS services in Nigeria is limited. Anchor is one of many startups capitalising on complacency from bigger banks, finding success by working with regulated institutions to develop platforms and bring embedded finance solutions to market. On last week's show, we covered how the African fintech market has surpassed $2 billion in investment funding. The story really is proof of that continued investor interest. Um, this is a not meant to be like a hint or anything, but I've not had the chance yet to go to Nigeria. But it is a market that I'm super fascinated by, you know, just as a country, like from a customer perspective, it's it's just huge, right? So like one and one that's going to continue to grow. So I think its population has tripled in size in the last 40 odd years. And that's going to grow, I think, or double again, I think, by 2050. So if that plays out, you're going to end up with a population that's you know on par roughly with the US, but kind of con- concentrated in a country that has a land mass that's pretty similar in size to the state of Texas. So really, really interesting. And so really pleased to see funding going into this market in general. You know, unsurprisingly, you know, there are 
bass players in this space already. So you know, Jumo, Maple Rad, One Pipe, Block, Block for C, not the Jack Dorsey one. Um, so they're going to have to prove themselves. But I thought it was also a really interesting one to read about in terms of their search for product market fit. So mm-hmm. they talk about how their initial target customers were big supermarkets and multinationals in Nigeria, but they realized that those companies just weren't technically sophisticated enough to adopt their product within the runway that they had. So pivoted to focus on digitally ready and tech enabled businesses. So yeah, I'm I'm really intrigued by their story and kind of what they're looking to achieve um, and just interested in Nigeria in general. So kudos to them and I hope that their, their new raise helps them to go continue doing more interesting things. Cool. Now it's time for the and finally section of the show, a look at something slightly more offbeat from the news this week. We've taken this story from Finextra, and that is Santander warns Brits to beware of love language used by romance scammers. (laughs) Romance scams are on the rise in Britain, increasing to over £31.3 million in 2022, up from £30.9 million in 2021 and £17.8 million in 2020. Santander's latest campaign teams up with dating guru Anna Williamson to raise awareness of romance fraud through its creative Love Heart ads. The Love Hurts campaign swaps the standard endearments on the the little sweets for typical phrases used by romance scammers to reel in their victims. (laughs) The average victim to love scammers loses £2,332. That's chunky. Dan, have you ever been caught out by us. We're going, this is meant to be a light-hearted uh, story, so obviously if there's anything that's like... I feel a bit self-conscious now, perhaps uh, not charming enough, not popular enough, but I have not been caught out by a love scam, <laughs> um, which is perhaps a good thing. Um, but hey, we don't have it all, I suppose. Yeah. I did actually meet my husband on Tinder, but this was like many, many moons ago. I mean, this was like ages and ages ago. So I'm, I'm, maybe I'm being naive. I don't think like... I mean, this was certainly before like 2020, which is when these numbers start from. So I don't know how many love scams were on, were on Tinder. So at you point. met pre-love scam era. Pre, I mean, hope so. I mean, unless he's just in it like massive, <laughs> the massive long game. I don't know. <laughs> it would be really Maybe. sad if that turns out to be the case. <laughs> um, Sid, what about you? Any any fun scam stories to share with us? I went to, actually, Matt West did a very interesting talk with some of the, the victims of the Tinder swindler uh, a while back, which I went to. And that was really, I mean, they're doing work on this uh, startup sort of consultancy um, to help people who are victims of luck scams. I, I've not fallen victim so far as I know, I, I, I hope. I think that it is remarkable how the depths that people will go to um, are in terms of the level of complexity. But I think that's true of all scams now is that you have this. Even mm-hmm. before, I, th- I think there was a lot of fears about AI being used for it, but actually people can do a lot just by their own kind of methods and it is uh, quite alarming. Yeah. Ali, I loved your phrase earlier about, you know, you don't have to be ballsy to be a be a criminal anymore like I suppose in this story in particular kind of just makes me really agree with that right like it's such a cowardly thing to take advantage of people's just wanting to be wanting to be loved it's yeah I don't know like what's what's your take on it I I I think it's despicable because you're playing with someone's emotions and it's not just their time but you're also trying to take their money from them and it's very manipulative but unfortunately without kind of big tech or these types of dating apps or platforms being held accountable for doing the necessary checks on who uses their their platforms, then it, it's really difficult to stop such type of scams whilst we can educate consumers such as the great work Santander are doing and a lot of financial institutions have been sending out emails and notifications. 
it, it's always the financial institution that kind of is the last step for the fraud yep. being identified. And, it, you know, it's it's the apps, it's the dating platforms that allow people to, to become victims of this. And it, it's not just kind of romance scams, like pig butchering, I'd also kind of classify as a romance scam. So that is where, you know, someone kind of becomes your friend or gets close to you and then talks about this great crypto investment that they've done um, to kind of trick you into either giving them the keys to your crypto wallets or to transfer money to them. So we're seeing romance scams kind of expand into all these other different types of frauds that are happening. Uh, and Sid, when you talked about AI being used for this, I mean, that terrifies me because can you imagine the amount of fake um, profiles that someone can set up? And fortunately, I haven't been a victim to romance scams. I have been catfished uh, many times, but I think my risk kind of, whenever I have my risk and compliance hat on, I'm always very yeah careful <laughs> I feel like that must be helpful like in any kind of interaction with online platforms but especially like if you were going to be on yeah, those kinds I do, of platforms um, I agree with that point of you hear about these scams you know on one article and then the other one you read about the rise of AI and it is terrifying um, <laughs> because you just think as it gets more and more sophisticated and can be done in a more scalable manner it's maybe no longer edge cases and I, I do find it terrifying I literally read the two and I almost think I'm I'm reading a dystopian novel yeah, or something. I didn't yeah. want to say it, but yeah, something along those lines. <laughs> well, this is meant to be our fun stories. So, I mean, I'm just conscious as well for our international listeners. I don't know how international love hearts as sweets or candy are. Like, they're just these little little circular... I have no idea what they're even made of, actually, which frightens me, actually. When, they say, when you think about something that you've eaten a lot and you're like, I've literally no idea how to describe <laughs> what this is. Maybe it's sherbet? I, don't I it's, think it's, yeah. Yeah, the little, like, circles about the size maybe of a, a standard coin and they have little phrases on them that just say sort of things like I love you or what are these called? you're handsome love hearts they're quite if you're feeling a bit you know down in the dumps you just want to cheer yourself up it's just like a packet of sweets that gives you compliments on on loop oh I think I've seen these yeah okay. I'd recommend them just to, just to cheer yourself up um let me so, place a bulk order. Yeah. yeah let's do it. <laughs> so just to round us off I just took it yeah I also to get some psychological insight as well into the panel I think it'd be helpful if there's um what would your perfect love heart say if you're going to open a open a tube of love hearts and first on the top? What 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 do you want it to say, Alia? Bite me came first to mind. So. <laughs> there probably is already a love heart that says bite me. <laughs> okay, Sid. Uh, and there's still this one from a webcomic, and it's cheese is available. I think those are the three great words. Cheese being available is always a good thing. Dan. More sugar now. I feel like they're very sweet. I don't think I've ever had them, so. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure if that works, but it's the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> I think on a similar thing, like, you know, given that my stomach has been rumbling all the way through this podcast, I think mine would have to be food related. Mine would have to be like, you know, pizza's on its way or something. Like, I think it had to be something, something food related. Okay, that wraps up this week's FinTech Insider. Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Alia? LinkedIn. Um, please do connect with me on LinkedIn. Alia Mehmood, Comply Advantage. Uh, I'd love to chat. Awesome. Thank you, Sid. Uh, I'm on the, the FTC website. Uh, very long surname, but it'll be a long time <laughs> you'll see that. Um, or you can feel free to drop me an email, much shorter email, Sid sid.v at ft.com or on Twitter at sbr13. It's a very impressively long surname. I think it wins the award for like <laughs> longest one I've seen in a while. So congratulations. Um, and Dan, what about you? Yeah, sure. Uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or uh, even via email, dan, d-a-n-n at public.com. And uh, to learn more about public, just check out our website, www.public.com. Uh, very cool domain name. 
Awesome. Um, and as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody on LinkedIn, or Kate at alonefest.com. Not because I've got a long surname, just because I'm lazy. So um, thank you for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcast at alonefest.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye.